Father, these words that we're about to hear may just be the most important words I've ever said in my entire life. And I have 50 minutes to make those words count for eternity. And so I pray that you'll come and help me. I pray that you'll help those who are here to be attentive and focused. And that above all, your gospel will go forth and your name will be glorified as we examine so great a salvation. In Christ's name, amen. Jesus Christ is Lord. Amen. He rules over all and is judge over all. He's the Savior of all men who believe in Him for eternal life. And I come this morning with a measure of concern because there are a number of people in the world who do not call Him Lord. We call them unbelievers. But perhaps even more frightening to me and more terrifying is the many of spoken by our Lord in Matthew chapter 7 who call Him Lord. And they say to him, Lord, Lord, and Jesus says, not everybody who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Jesus said that there will be many on that day who will say, Lord, didn't we do all this stuff for you? And he will say, depart from me, I never knew you, you who practice lawlessness. That concerns me as a shepherd, that there are many people, many people who call him Lord, who miss heaven. Titus 1.16 says that there are many people who profess Him to know Him, but by their deeds they deny Him. And so being a Christian is more than what you say, it's who you are and what you do. And so God calls us to examine ourselves. In 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5, He says, Test yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Examine yourselves. Do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? Peter says, I want you to labor in 2 Peter 1.10 and be diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing of you. And you say, how do I do this? How do I examine myself? I mean, this, this topic of self-examination comes up a lot lately. How do I do that? What are you looking for? Are you looking for a decision? Are you looking for a raised hand, a walk dial, a signed card? Some moment in the past? Or are you looking for evidence of genuine transformation, God at work in the life Listen to Ezekiel 18, verse 27. It says, When a wicked man turns away from his wickedness which he has committed and practices justice and righteousness, he will save his life. Why? Because he considered and turned away from all his transgressions which he had committed, and he shall live, he shall not die. Lamentations, the prophet Jeremiah said in 3.20, Let us examine and probe our ways and let us return to the Lord. Psalm 119, verse 59, I considered my ways, said the psalmist, and turned my feet to your testimonies. I hastened and did not delay to keep your commandments. Here in our church recently, the topic of self-examination has come up a lot, and you've wondered why. What's, what's been happening? Why all of a sudden this, this urge to examine yourself to see genuineness? It's because, beloved, the gospel of Christ is under attack. There are many people teaching a false gospel. There are many people who say all you have to do at one point in your life is believe the facts about the gospel, and if you never believe it again, and you become an apostate or an agnostic or an atheist, that you're still saved. That's what they say. There has to be no repentance, no change in your life, no turning from sin, no verification of genuineness 
by fruit. They say that you can accept Jesus as Savior, and later on in in your life, you can get serious about making Jesus Lord. Let me tell you something. Jesus is Lord. You don't say, oh, I'm going to let you into my life, but you can't be Lord. You have to be who I'm telling you you have to be. Turn to John chapter 3 for just a second. John 3 contains probably the most familiar scripture verse to all of us. John 3.16, you know it well. You could quote it without turning there, but I want you to turn there. John chapter 3, let's just read verse 16. It says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever should believe in Him should not perish but have eternal life. Right? Now look at the same chapter, verse 36. He who believes in the Son has eternal life. But he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Now, if you have a New King James or a King James Version, it says believes instead of does not obey. That is a very unfortunate translation. That is not what that word means at all. If you have an NIV, it might say the word reject. The the Greek communicates absolutely clearly that the one who literally disobeys the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. If you believe in Christ, you'll be saved. But the belief and the faith that you have is of such a quality that you obey the Son. So there are many people teaching a false gospel, but you know what's even more terrifying to me? That there are people out there believing a false gospel. They believe that they're on the narrow road which leads to life, but really they're on the broad road because someone somewhere told them that all they had to do was was walk an aisle and say a prayer or, or, or repeat some facts about the gospel. Raise a hand. Well, I know that they divorced their wife, and I know that they commit adultery, and I know that they, they're drunk all the time, and I know that they don't go to church, but I remember the day they walked the aisle. What is that? What is that? How do you understand these people? First John 2 says, they went out from us because they were not really of us. First John 2.19 For if they had been with us, they would have remained with us, but they went out so that it would be shown that they are not all of us. The issue about Jesus being Lord is a settled one. That's not the issue. The issue is whether or not we live our lives in such a way that His Lordship is demonstrated through us. Jesus said in Luke 6.46, and if you're taking notes, write this verse down. Why do you call me Lord, He says, and do not do what I say? Don't call me Lord if you're not going to do what I say. I'm not Lord. Now, a true Christian is marked and measured by his commitment to Christ, his submission in his heart. James 2 says, What does it profit a man if he says he has faith but has no works? Can that kind of faith save him? And the answer is no. The kind of faith that doesn't inevitably produce in you works is not genuine faith. It's dead faith and demon faith, he says. 1 John 2, 3 through 6 says, By this we know that we have come to know Him. How do I know whether or not I've come to know God if we keep His commandments? The one who says... Now, you notice there's this theme throughout, don't you? There's a dichotomy between what you say and what you do. The one who says, I have come to know Him, and does not keep His commandments is a what? Is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But by this we know that we are in Him. The one who says He abides in Him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. So it's not what you say only. It's who you are. It's your life. Now, as a shepherd, I would tremble 
to think that someone could sit under the preaching of the Word of God here at Calvary Bible Church and leave a pew and go to the lake of fire. That, that makes me tremble inside. To think that it's possible that there are some who sit here that think that they're genuinely on the way to heaven and one day receive the shock of their life. I don't want you to believe a false gospel. I want you to measure yourselves rightly against the true gospel. And I want you to find assurance. I want you to find assurance. You say, but wait a minute. If I'm always examining myself and always questioning myself, how could I ever have assurance? How could I possibly be assured of anything if all I'm doing is just constantly examining myself and examining myself? I mean, am I supposed to, am I supposed to live the rest of my Christian life in doubt and hope that by my works someday I'll wash up on heaven's shore? Emphatically, no. We don't want you to be preoccupied your whole Christian life with doubt. Uh, the Christian life is a life of faith. Uh, you live a whole life of doubt. You can, you can be hindered in your Christian life. You can never get on to the business of living in a way that is pleasing to God if all you're sitting here thinking about is, well, am I a Christian? Am I not a Christian? I don't want you to lack assurance. I want you to find assurance, but I want you to measure your assurance, not on the basis of some act that you did in the past, but by the evidence of God in your life who's transformed you and producing in you a quality of righteousness and fruit from the heart. That's the measuring rod. That's the plumb line by which we examine ourselves. Hebrews 11 says what? Faith is the what? Assurance of things not seen, and, and the conviction of things hoped for. That's, uh, faith is our assurance. You say, wait a minute, I, I thought faith was our assurance. You look at the men of faith in the rest of the chapter, and what do you find? You find a men who had an internal heart change before God that lived in such a way that they were pleasing to Him. True faith is our assurance, beloved. The promises that you and I cling to, those are precious promises. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a what? It's a foretaste of glory. You know what distinguishes our faith between some other faith? It's because we can know that we have eternal life. We can be assured that we are going to heaven. That, that's the distinctive of our faith. That's what makes us different from everybody else because everybody else trusts in their works and they hope that one day it's going to work itself out. And so I'm not advocating some sort of works righteousness. What I am saying, though, is true, genuine, saving faith is measurable it is discernible. You can see it. It's tangible. You know, 1 John was written, the thesis of 1 John, these things are written, why? So that you might believe in the name of the Son of God and know that you have eternal life. Now, the same John who wrote that wrote these words. 1 John 3.18. Don't turn there, just listen. Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and in truth. Don't just say you love somebody. Love them. Demonstrate it. And we will know by this, referring to that, that we are of the truth and we will assure our heart before him. You know where I get assurance? Not by, by you know, some point in the past I signed a card and I stuck it in the front flyleaf of my Bible and it says, don't ever doubt it again because this is your spiritual birthday. No, I look at my life and I see that God is at work and I, I am assured that my faith is real, that the promises I've clung to are, are true. And so a person who lives perpetually in an unbroken pattern of sin with no repentance can have no claim of assurance. Because Jesus says, if you have genuine faith, it works out this way. So what I want to do this morning is go back. I want to go back and, and revisit the gospel. I want to look at the gospel of Christ. 
which is about a million miles away from the gospel that you see on television or the gospel that so many people teach and believe. I want to go all the way back, and I want to, I want to lead you there through a series of passages. Open first to Matthew chapter 16, if you would, please. Matthew chapter 16. Matthew 16, 24. Listen to the words of Jesus. Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Very interesting words here in the, behind the, the words of Jesus in the Greek. What he says is, if anyone wants to come after me, if anyone wants to be saved, you know what he has to do? Let him thoroughly deny himself as the literal. But even more so in, in the original, what Jesus said, he uses a past tense word to talk about a present reality. What he says in effect is, you have to go out and once for all thoroughly deny yourself. That's what that means. And then, once for all, take up your cross. Take up your cross. Go out to the cross and hang on it and die to self. That's what he's saying. If you want to be my disciple, you have to once for all die to self and once for all thoroughly deny yourself. That you want to be my disciple, that's what you can do. And then present tense, continually for the rest of your life, follow me. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. You say, well, how do I know he's not calling me to deeper discipleship? How, how do I know that this is not just, I get saved, and then later on, if I want to reach a level of spirituality that I pursue this, look at verse 26. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his what? His soul. Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Beloved, salvation is an exchange of all that I am for all that he is. There can be no genuine salvation when self is on the throne. Matthew 6.24, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will hold to the one and despise the other. You can't, you can't have self on the throne and Christ on the throne. And if self is on the throne, Christ isn't even in the equation. Listen, Jesus, I mean, and on several occasions, Jesus had some radical words to say. Listen to these words. Luke 14, 26 says this. If anyone comes to me, you ready for this? Put your seatbelt on. And does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry up his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. You say, whoa, where's that gospel today? Now, does Jesus mean I should, I should uh, uh, hate my mom? I thought he said I should honor and love my parents. What's he saying? What's going on here? Jesus says, your love for me, your commitment to me, and your devotion to me has to far outweigh any love or any commitment you have. So that the love for me makes those other loves pale in comparison to what would even be like a hate. Because you love me so much. That's radical. And this morning what I want to do is look at a man who comes to Jesus for salvation. And guess what? Jesus turns him away. He turns him away. He never tells him to believe. And he sends him away without what he came for, eternal life. Matthew chapter 19. Turn there. Matthew chapter 19. 
We find Jesus in the context of his ministry in Judea beyond the Jordan. You can see that in verse 1. When he finished these words, he departed from Galilee and came into the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And it says in verse 16, And someone came to him. A man came to him. And Matthew uses the word behold. Literally, that means when you see that word behold in your Bible study, what you want to do, the author's trying to say is stop what you're doing and look at that word behold. Just there's something that you don't want to miss. It's so important that you have to see it. So he says, behold, a man came to him. And there's something startling about this man that Matthew wants us to key in on. He wants to grab our attention because this was no ordinary man. If you look down at verse 22, you can see that he was a rich man. He owned much property. According to verse 22, it says he was also a young man, which means he was probably under the age of 40. And then according to Luke 18, it says that he was a ruler of the synagogue. So here's the picture. This is a guy with his whole future in front of him because he's a young man. Everything that he could possibly want because he's a rich man, he's popular, and he's also up at the upper echelons of religion. He's a leader of the synagogues. This is no ordinary guy. This is, this is what we would call, we'll call him the rest of our, our talk this morning, the rich young ruler. He had all of the stuff he could have ever wanted. And Mark tells us that he runs up to Jesus, Mark 10, 17, ran up before him and slid on the ground in front of him and knelt before him and started asking him questions. So here's the picture. Jesus is in, in, in Judea and he's ministering and he's about to take off for a different phase of ministry. And all of a sudden, Matthew says, behold, there's this guy coming. He's a rich man. He's a young man. He, he, he's he's this, this wealthy man. He, he, he has all the religious credentials that you could ever want. And this guy in front of everybody runs up and slides in front of Jesus and and cries out to Jesus. I mean, it's no wonder he says, Behold. What does he say? Look back at verse 16. This is so interesting. Someone came to him and said, Teacher, what good thing shall I do to obtain eternal life? The guy is coming for salvation. He comes as an eager seeker. He has a question for Jesus that can't wait. But before the conversation in our morning is over, Jesus denies him the kingdom. And in this text, Jesus unfolds the true gospel and reveals six essential ingredients required for salvation. Six essential ingredients. And if you're going to be saved, and if I'm going to be saved by Christ, we must satisfy and have all six ingredients. Number one, the first ingredient for genuine salvation and acceptance of Christ is you have to admit that there is a need. You have to admit that there is a need. Look at verse 16 again. He said to him, Teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may obtain eternal life? Now, eternal life here is used 50 times in the Bible, and it always, every time it appears, refers to salvation. It always refers to our redemption. And here's a guy coming to Jesus, and he knows that he needs salvation. He knows that he needs eternal life, and that's a good thing. Otherwise, he wouldn't have come. He wouldn't have come to Jesus if he didn't see that there was some sort of need, some sort of void that he had. But he comes running up to Jesus and he says, Teacher, if this can't wait, what can I do to have eternal life? It's interesting. Spiritually, he knew things weren't well. Spiritually, he knew that even his best efforts, his life, no matter how sufficient he was in his money and in his fame and in his religious status and in his youth, he still was missing something, and that is a right relationship with God, a quality of life with, with God that endures for eternity, eternal life. I need eternal life. And let me just stop to say that many people don't even make it to this point. Many people don't even admit the need that they have. They don't, they don't admit that they have a need. They say that our religion is what? It's a crutch. It's for the weak. 
Let me tell you something. Dead people don't need crutches. Dead people need resurrection. We, we need all of God. We don't need God to come along and just sort of bump us up a little bit because we're weak and we need to be stronger. We have to admit that we are totally bankrupt in and of ourselves and that we have ultimate need. Only God can help us. And so if a person is going to come to God, that he has to see that his sin has separated him from God and there's a big need. There's a big emptiness and a vacuum in his soul. He has to admit his need for God and eternal life. And this man at some level did admit that, didn't he? He did acknowledge that he had a need, so he's on the right course. And so he's looking to Jesus for further help. He had a problem, though. Look back at verse 16. He says, Teacher, what? What's your say? Good things shall I do to obtain eternal life. Lord, I'm a pretty religious guy. I know I don't have eternal life, so what should I do? What good work should I work in order to be saved? So he showed that he still needed uh, something else. He was still looking to himself for sufficiency. He was still looking to himself for salvation. And this man knows that he has a need, but he wanted to know how he himself could meet that need. And he needs Jesus to tell him, so that's why he comes. So Jesus helps him along. But number two, once you understand your need, you must, number two, appeal to God for who he truly is. You must appeal to God for who he truly is. Look back down at verse 16. It says, and someone came to him and said, teacher, what good thing shall I do to obtain eternal life? Now, both Mark and Luke add that the man said, good teacher. He called him good teacher. And then verse 17, and Jesus said to him, why are you asking me about what is good? There is only one who is good, but if you wish to enter into life, keep the commandments. In other words, what what the man would have said is he would have said, teacher, good teacher. Um, What good thing shall I do to have eternal life? And, and by tacking on that little word "good," that both Matthew and their parallel account, or both Mark and Luke and their parallel accounts tell us, is that the man came to Jesus and he recognized something in Jesus. There was an intrinsic goodness in his uh, in his teaching and in his character that qualified him to speak about eternal life. In other words, when this guy came to Jesus, he says, "I know that you are good." That is to say, and you didn't call anybody good teacher, okay? You just never did that. Good teacher meant that you are one who embodies the virtues of this, and you are also one who teaches us from God. And so he would have said, I recognize you're a good teacher. I recognize that you live what you say and that you speak with authority, so point me to eternal life. Now what Jesus does is so interesting here, because he says in effect that you have to understand a little bit more about me. Look look back down at verse 17. He says, why are you asking me about what is good? Mark 10 adds, and this is the parallel account, so I'm trying to bridge the gaps for you. Jesus also says, why do you call me good, and why are you asking me about what is good? That would be the sum of what Jesus said. Why are you calling me good and asking me about what's good? You say, "What's, what's the point about that? He says that there is none good but who? God. So wait a minute. Is Jesus denying his deity? Is he saying, you're calling me good teacher. Don't don't do that. There's only one who's good. Call him good teacher. Is that what he's doing? Hardly. Jesus is very clear all throughout the Bible about his own deity. I think that what's happening is specifically this. You're calling me good teacher. And you're right. You have no idea how good of a teacher I am. And you think that by coming to me, I can point you to God. Let me tell you something. You're standing in front of him. 
I'm not going to point you to the way to eternal life. I am the way to eternal life. Why are you calling me good? If you're calling me good, then you must mean that I am God. He's in fact God. Jesus is more than holy and good. He is the way of eternal life. And so if you and I are to be saved, we have to come to the right source. We have to come to the right place and understand who he truly is. We must have a true and basic understanding of Christ. And you say, oh, well, do you mean, what all do I have to understand? Do I have to understand uh, all the complexities of his deity and how the Trinity fits together and, and all of that stuff? No. Do I have to understand the intricacies of the atonement and, and be able to spout off all these big words? No. You have to have a basic understanding of the holiness of God, the deity of Christ, the atonement of Christ, and faith alone in his promises that will save you. And the reason that that's important, and I camp on that, is because that there are many, many false religions, many cults who worship and serve a different Christ. They'll say, uh, for example, Mormons will say, well, we, we believe in Jesus and you believe in Jesus. Really, we're the same. The problem is, is we, we are believing in a different Jesus. The Jesus that they believe in is a Jesus who is the spirit brother of the devil and one of many gods who died for this planet. And one day you'll become your own Jesus Christ and you will go and die for your own planet and be a god. And that's a different Jesus. That God was also once a man and he evolved into a god and one day you will. You'll become a god. This is blasphemy. And if you're going to come to Christ and you're going to come to salvation, you must come to the right source and appeal to him for who he truly is. And so Jesus helps this man along. Number three, once you see your need and understand God for who he is, then you must, number three, affirm a perfect standard. Affirm a perfect standard. Now, this is where the text gets really interesting. Now, notice, too, that Jesus hasn't answered his question. He says, what can I do to have eternal life? And Jesus is still holding me at arm's length. He's not answered his question at all. He's taken a, a slight detour to clarify who he is. And, and, and this guy says, Jesus, what can I do to be saved? What would you say? What would you say? Believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved. Acts 16.31, right? What's Jesus say? Keep the commandments. Verse 17. Why are you asking me about what is good? There is only one who is good. But if you wish to enter into life, keep the commandments. You say, what is Jesus doing? What, is he a legalist? I mean, is Jesus blowing his opportunity? I mean, you saying, is Jesus teaching salvation by works? What's he doing? What's going on here? He says, okay, the guy says, well, which commandments? And Jesus says, well... Um, you shall not commit murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother and love your neighbor as yourself. He gives five of the last ten commandments and one commandment from Leviticus 18. And you say, oh man, what is Jesus doing here? Is he teaching him salvation by works? No. He's trying to get him to see the perfect standard which he falls immeasurably short of. He says, he says, you want, to be, you want to be saved, keep the commandments. And the guy, the guy, Jesus is just piling commandments on top of him and says, you want to be saved, keep this and keep this and keep this and keep this. Jesus isn't saying you get saved by works. What he's saying is that in order for you to be saved and to see your sin, you have to affirm a perfect standard that you fall short of. He did this on a number of occasions. In Matthew 5, he said, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Now you say, what is going on here? What is happening here? Uh, he's trying to show him something about God's law and God's standard to show him his sin. To show him his sin. Keep your finger in Matthew for a second and go over to Romans. Romans 3.
And here Jesus is just piling commandments on the rich young ruler. But we see a little bit behind the curtain in Romans 3, verse 20. Now, are you saved by works, yes or no? No, not at all. Listen to Paul in Romans 3, put it together, verse 20. By the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. Because through the law comes what? The knowledge of sin. Jesus isn't teaching salvation by works. Jesus is trying to get this guy to see his sin. Romans 7, look at this. This is a phenomenal verse. Romans 7. And still keep your finger in Matthew because we'll go right back there. Romans 7, verse 7. Is the law sin, he says? May it never be. On the contrary, listen to this. I would have not known sin except through the law. For I will have not have known about coveting if the law had not said, you shall not covet. You know what? I was a sinner, but I didn't see my sin until the law came. And when I saw this huge standard, I saw where I was in light of the standard. And he says, when I read, you shall not covet, you know what Paul says? I saw my sin. Verse 8. He says, and then I saw sin taking opportunity through the commandment, and it produced in me coveting of every kind. You say, what is, what's going on? Paul, as an unbeliever, he's reading the law, and he thinks he's, he thinks he's golden. He thinks he kept the law perfectly. And then he reads, you shall not covet. And then he goes, hmm. Can't keep that one externally. And all of a sudden, he saw that he was a coveter. And moreover, he saw that this law uh, provoked within him his rebellious, ungodly, unredeemed nature. And he said, wow, I realize that I'm a renegade before God. And so what Jesus is going after here is not a work salvation. You can go back to Matthew. He's not going for a work salvation. What he's going after is showing this guy a divine standard. He says, you have to be perfect to get into heaven. And the guy should have said, what? But I can't keep the commandments. But I've broken them all. What does he say? Look back down at verse 20. The young man said to him, all of these things I have what? Kept. What am I still lacking? What did he fail to see? He didn't see a sin. He says, you shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. Love your father and mother. Oh, kept them all. No problem. I'm I'm good here. What else? He didn't see a sin. He, He saw the standard and then he was supposed to say, Jesus, but I can't. I need your help. I need salvation. I need your forgiveness. I need eternal life. And I recognize now all the more why I need it. And Jesus knew that in this man's heart, he did not see his sin. He was a self-righteous man coming to God for, for what he could, he could get and what he could build up in his life. And so number four, when you see God's standard, you have to acknowledge your sin. You have to acknowledge your sin. Once you see the character of God as revealed in the law, you must see yourself as a sinner and in need of salvation. And this is what the man failed to see. And obviously, did this guy keep the commandments? No. He might say, as was the case of the religion in the day, that, yeah, I haven't actually committed the act of murder. I haven't actually committed adultery. But guess what? Matthew chapter 5, and we're going to even look at this next week. Jesus says, if you're ever angry in your heart with your brother, you're guilty of murder. If you've ever looked on a woman to lust for her, you are guilty of adultery. And so now he might ask the man, so, you ever broken these commandments? And the man should have said, oh, yeah. In my heart, I am, a, I am a, a serial killer. He should have said that. But what did he say? No, I've kept them all. Kind of, you know, brushing himself a little bit. 
No. This man had a hard heart towards the things of God and a spiritual blindness to his own sin. He's not, Jesus isn't teaching the works salvation. He's teaching that you are saved when you come and see God for who He truly is, when you affirm that He is holy and you don't measure up and that you see your sin and need desperately a Savior. Because, listen to me, if you do not see your sin, you have no need for a Savior. Bottom line. You don't see your sin? What's a Savior for? Just what the man wanted him to be, to just point him, this is what you do, just clean up this in your life. Which brings us to the crux of the whole situation. Number five, Jesus takes it to the next level and says, if you are going to be saved, you have to abandon all to follow Christ. You must abandon all to follow Christ. Now look at this and tell me if this would be your gospel, okay? Verse 21, he says, what, he says in 20, what am I still lacking? Okay, Jesus says, you want to know what you're lacking? Verse 21, if you wish to be complete or perfect, go sell all your possessions and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. Now you say, what is this? Give your money away? You get saved, is this salvation by philanthropy? I mean, if you get saved by giving your money to a poor guy, then he's lost because he's got it, right? I mean, you can stand there with him and hand it back and forth and hope you don't have it at the second coming. What does he mean, give your money away? What's going on here? Jesus knew that the God of this man's life was his money. Jesus knew that what this man was holding on to, the king that he bowed down to, was his lust of money. It wasn't as if, as if this guy is, is you know, uh, uh, saying, well, Jesus, you know, I, I really want salvation. And Jesus is saying, get saved by giving your money away. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying you get saved by by giving your money away, although people on television might have you believe that. There was one thing this man was holding on to, and if you get nothing else from this morning, I hope you get this, that Jesus knows what the God of our life is, and that's what he wants. That's what he wants. He says, he says you want eternal life? That's fine. I'm willing to talk about that. I have one question. Are you willing to follow me? This was an arbitrary question. He could have asked him for anything. He could have asked him for anything at all. But he knew what this man bowed his heart to, what he lived for, and it wasn't Christ, and says, that's what I want. If you want eternal life, you have to be willing to abandon all and follow me. Salvation is not a matter of just believing. And that's it. The facts about the gospel, and if you never believe it again, and it has no effect on your daily life. No, a true believer is willing, because they want eternal life so bad, to follow him in whatever he asks. And Jesus never gets to the issue of believe, because the man's heart is never ready, because he is, willing to hold, he is not willing to let go of the things he's holding on to. His life wasn't surrendered to Christ. In other words, you bow your knee to Christ as Lord. Jesus is Savior and Lord. You don't, you don't sort of dichotomize and split them up and say, well, I'll let you be Savior, but I won't let you be Lord. He is Lord. He is Lord. Now, does that mean that we, that we don't struggle? No. Does that mean that we still sin? Man, all the time. But the inward commitment of my heart is a willingness before God to bow my knee to Him no matter what He asks me. And Jesus says, that kind of person I'll give eternal life to. So in your gospel presentation, it might go like this. You must be willing to turn from trusting yourself and turn from your life of sin and follow Christ. Two, two components essential for salvation, really. Turning from sin and following Christ. Do you love Christ? Is Christ the desire of your heart? Is it, is it your life? Do you long to please Him when you don't please Him? Are you, are you grieved by that? 
But once you admit that there's a need and you appeal to God for who He truly is, affirming a perfect standard and acknowledge your sin and have abandoned all to follow Christ, number six, then you can accept His forgiveness. Then you can accept His forgiveness. And what did the man do? Did he say, okay, whatever it takes, whatever you ask, Lord, I'm willing to do. Is that what he said? No. Look at verse 22. But when the young man heard this statement, he went away grieved. Why? Because he owned much property. Here's the picture. The guy falls down in front of Jesus. What can I do to be saved, good teacher? Jesus says, keep the commandments. I've kept them all. Well, then if if you've kept them all, go give your money away to the poor and come follow me. We'll test your allegiance to me. And he gets up and says, okay. I guess I don't want eternal life that bad. And he walked away. He walked away from Christ. He walked away from eternal life. And he walked into the lake of fire. All because of money. All because that's the God he bowed down to. Now, what's troubling about this man is that probably anybody in most churches in in our country and in the world would, would take this guy and turn around to the church and say, see... He came, he was he an was a, a eager seeker. He's a, he's a believer now. See, let's turn him around and everybody, I want you to line up here and I want you to welcome him because he's in the kingdom now. Jesus turns him away and says, you can't have eternal life because the barrier in your heart is love of self. And so what do you do to for- receive forgiveness? What do you do to receive forgiveness? It's simple. Believe that God is who he says he is and that Jesus died on your cross to endure the wrath meant for your sin and rose again to conquer death, and that by turning from your sin and following Him in faith, you may have eternal life. You can worship and serve Him forever. And if you want that, you must be willing to part company with sin. You must be willing in your heart of hearts to relinquish anything that holds Him at arm's length. You can't say, oh, I'll take the forgiveness, thanks, but I'm going to go on living my life however I desire to live. No. Now, Jesus says, all or nothing. What will a man give in exchange for his soul? He says, there's no, there's no forgiveness under these conditions, he says. You, you don't bow your knee, you don't get to forgiveness. It's astounding. It's astounding. He who believes in the Son has life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, ever. And I don't know where you're at this morning. I don't know who you, who, what you came in with this morning. I don't know what's going on in your heart. But if you've never acknowledged your sins, if you've never turned from your sins to bow your knee to the Lord Jesus Himself, then you can choose right now where you are to follow Christ. You can make a commitment right now, no matter what, you're willing to believe and repent and trust in the One who saved you. He offers salvation to all who would place their faith in Christ and submit to Him as Master. And if you are a Christian, let me just encourage you to to look for assurance, not in some walked aisle, raised hand, some emotional response to some sermon, but to the genuineness of God in your life. And, and, and I would ask you do, you, do you love Christ? Is Christ the, the, the passion of your life? Do you pursue Christ? Do you follow Christ? When you, when you don't follow Christ, does that sadden you? Does it grieve you? Are you grieved by your sin? Do you see a decrease in sin, however slow, and an an increase in holiness? Do you see some trace of God at work in your life whereby you might verify that indeed your faith is real? Now, let me just encourage you. All of us fall, don't we? Many, 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 many times. The righteous falls seven times and what? Gets back up. 
This may help you in your thinking. There's a difference between, in your Christian life, the snapshot and the video. What I mean by that is if you took a snapshot, you took a picture of me at my worst, you might say, man, who in the world does this guy think he is saying that Jesus is his Lord? If you just look at that one little, that one little snapshot of me, you might really have some hard questions for me. But if you, if you turned on the video and watched the whole thing, you would see a Christian who loves the Lord and is striving after God, but is finding himself caught and entangled and, and trying to let God who's in me, outside of me, to control me and to influence me, then I'll, I'll, see, a, I'll see a pattern, but Lord willing, a, a, a climb upward. That's what you'll see. The diff- it's the difference between a snapshot and a video. And, and I just have to ask you this morning, does your video look like your snapshot, if your snapshot's bad? If it does, you've got some hard questions to answer, and we're here to help. Look at your life. Look at your life. I plead with you, look at your life. Your eternity depends on it. Do you follow Christ? Do you love Christ? Do you know Christ? Christ is not the perfection of your life here, but he is the direction of your life. You're not going to attain perfection here in this life, and no one don't let anyone tell you that you can. If they do, they're a false teacher. That's what eternity is all about. That's why we long for the return of Christ, because when he comes, he will make us perfect like himself, 1 John 3 says. But while you are here, your commitment can be a Godward commitment. Your relationship with him can demonstrate itself over time. This is your gospel. You must recognize your need. That is salvation from your sin. You have to affirm the character of God in Christ. You have to realize God has a perfect standard, which is absolute righteousness, which you and I have fallen so woefully short of and have to acknowledge. We have to turn from our sins, follow Christ, and receive the forgiveness that he offers. And if we can be of some help for you this morning, we'd love to do that. I'll, I'll be up here. You can go through these doors, and there's a prayer room with people that are waiting to talk to you. Whatever you need, we're here to help. But I hope that, that this brings some clarity with regards to the issue of examine yourself And we want you to be liberated in what you find. Father, I pray that you'll work your work in each of our hearts as we examine ourselves to see genuine traces of you. We love you and we affirm that following you is joy, even though it's hard. And you ask a lot and we're willing because you're our Lord. We give thanks in your name. Amen. You're dismissed.